Here we go. Good to see you. Let's pray and let's go. Mary, you ready? Love you, Mary. Good job. All right, here we go. Here, fold your hands, close your eyes. Here we go. Almighty and everlasting God, you promised us a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We beg you, direct us by your spirit that we wait watchfully for the coming of your son and live with holy lives to go forth to meet him through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, everybody good? Good to see you. Let's see. You should buy some greens. If you buy a lot of greens, um, those women will give money away. It's going to the seminary in Fort Wayne this, uh, this time around. So they're looking for a target. I wrote the uh, dean of the chapel. They, they might need red, some red vestments. And so I wrote to see whether St. John could buy those. So we're kind of in waiting. So maybe that will happen. Let's see. No Bible study or Sunday school next week. So our class is now trying to, we're trying to match the Sunday school schedule because if we don't, we kind of mix everybody up because people are gone and there's no place to put kids and all of that. So you're off next week and then we'll come back strong. Uh, Wednesday night, 7 p.m., come for Vespers for Thanksgiving. So that's good. And then Advent starts the week after that four times. Come to dinner, 6 to 7, and then uh, just some time for quiet and prayer from 7 to 7.30. We will give money to the Russians today. So if you, uh, the Russians are remarkable in what they endure. And uh, we'll help them help pay some rent going into winter where, you know, it gets quite cold. And in Russia, it's kind of interesting. There's no, you miss a payment, I mean, you're out the next day. So there's quite a lot of pressure on these guys to always, to always uh, make, make, uh, Make the bill. Uh, Aaron Zeller is here. We're trying to get a picture of everybody in the congregation. Mostly, not to publicize it necessarily, but mostly for there. There's so many people that other people don't know. So if pastors or governing board want to, we say, "Hey, could you talk to this person?" And and if you have a picture, and especially with your kids, it's very very helpful. So Aaron Zeller is here somewhere. He's a handsome man. That's him over there. His wife is very lucky. Uh, that he's not worse than he is. So, uh, no, that's what I meant to say. I'm sorry, I meant to say that. No, he's, you know, he's a very fine young man. You can keep your old picture. If you have a picture and if you like appearing 10 years younger, when I, when I gave these lectures in California, I sent him a picture and the guy wrote me back and he's like, yeah, nice picture when you were 35. So, uh, like, it's the only picture I had. I wasn't going to snap a selfie and send it. Doesn't, nobody looks at the picture anyway. So, um, anyway... He's got, I think you've got a folder of if we have a picture or not. If you're blank, it's under papal order that you have your picture taken this morning. Isn't that right? Today is the day. And uh, if you like your old picture when you were younger and, and uh, more wonderful than you happen to be today, that's okay with us. I mean, we all lie too. So uh, just checking on you. So, um, you know, no, uh, C. Zeller, and there's some other people around too, but that would help us very much. Some of these things are so easy now. And, you know, I told you when, when Buke's, held up his camera and said, everybody take a selfie, and nobody did. We could have solved it in one, you know, one minute. Everybody shoots a selfie. Selfies at stjohnwheaton.org. True. If you send it, it comes right to us. Selfies at stjohnwheaton.org. So if you rebel against the man, right, if you refuse to come under any authority or organization, then just send us a selfie. Steve Cole, send us a selfie. Selfies at stjohnwheaton.org. It'll be here this afternoon. We'll snap it up and mustache that long pink tongue, and we'll send it out to other people. It'll be great. But don't worry. Those things aren't saved anywhere <laughs> where the Russians could hack in and expose you. Don't worry. They're not there. They're not really there. Okay. You good? All right. Questions about anything? So um, what I've been trying to convince you of is to be different. 
and under the rubric of the creed tells us about whatever. There's, you know, you know where we started. There's nothing more boring than the creed. And if you want to, if you want to hammer people with it and say, "Hey, you're not one of us, or you're outside, or you're not as good as we are, or you're a heretic," or grab the matches, here we go, um, get the sticks. You know, if you want to, if you want to play that way, you can play hard, and and people have played that way for a couple thousand years. But the world is a changed place, and Christians now. Um, the influence of Christians will diminish over the next years if things don't change around. And so then um, we'll, you know, we'll have to do our best to give a good witness. Now, hopefully we can do that, right? Hopefully we can do that, and hopefully that witness will be in the way of love. The trouble for us, of course, is that love doesn't come naturally. In, natu- in our natural lives, we can kind of approximate things that happen. We can, um, we can imitate things. There's, you know... Um, you know, sightings of the divine. There's sparks around. We can we can approximate things. But one of the very interesting things about the discourse in America right now is at what a low level it proceeds. Now, if you can, without um, being superior or triumphalist or um, in any way demeaning of other people, if you can add your voice to a conversation that includes other people and is always loving in a way perhaps that the world doesn't understand, pause. So that would mean to embrace the divine virtues above tribes, for example. Um, So what does it mean when Jesus says, um, I don't have any enemies, so you don't have any enemies? What does it mean for a Christian to say that? Jesus says, turn the other cheek, um, pray for those who revile you, lend and expect nothing in return. Really, expect nothing in return for what you do in the world. Expect nothing in return. Right? So we're in a season now where everybody expects something in return. Right? Post-election, things are being traded now. Positions are being staked out. Jesus, of course, is quite opposite. And it's so helpful in a way when things so go to hell in the rest of the world that you have to be you know, starkly, starkly depraved not to be able to see the difference between a person who says, I don't have any enemies, and somebody who says, I will mark my enemies and hurt them deeply. Right? So, you know, it's becoming more and more clear that Jesus is not the way of the world. Now, it's going to be difficult for you because um, you're going to suffer because of this. You know, uh, sometimes the suffering of Christians is lost in the, in the, in the amidst of all the other sufferings. Um, it's a, there's a plus and a minus to that. Of course, we respect all the other people who suffer. We have to be sensitive to them and in some ways, a simpatico. These are, these are your comrades, right? But in another sense... Um, Christians have often been, you know, the forgotten people, even when um, they're on top. I mean, the Ukraine, you know, 8 million, 8 million Lutherans in the genocide of the Ukraine under Stalin, more than the Holocaust. Nobody ever talks about that. Or the 20th century genocide of Christians. More Christians killed in the 20th century than any other century, but all all the other centuries put together, right? So... um, you know, it'll, it'll be difficult because there'll, there'll likely be pain and suffering involved. Nevertheless, you know, as you heard today, the last Sunday of the church year, we read the crucifixion. Next week, for the first Sunday of the church year, we will read Jesus coming humbly to Jerusalem, right? And will be rejected. That's where we start with that king. So you, you follow this person who has a completely different ideal than the rest of the world. Nevertheless, it is irrefutable that the modern and the postmodern now project has failed. So this notion that in the modern world, 
Um, these are our problems and we'll fix them. These are our problems and we'll fix them and we don't need God to fix them. The last 300 years is a testimony to the fact that such a thing is not true. The environment, worse. Genocide, worse. War continues. Sickness, not stymied. Um, how people care for each other, racism, bigotry, hatred, go, 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 right? The modern project has failed. That accounts for this unease in our world today where so many people feel alone and unloved, and that expression, that aloneness and unlovedness is expressed in fear and anger. And so um, Christians will be remarkable in this world if they are defined by something other than that. Now, the trouble with that is the church has always said we can't kind of muster that ourselves. We're ruined, um, and we just, you know, self-interest is our primary problem. And self-interest isn't to be honed and adored. Self-interest is meant to be displaced by the love of Christ. And so you have this very basic proposition that I, I gave you, you know, C.S. Lewis gave a nice sum of it a couple of times back when he says, until you've given yourself up to God, you'll never have a real self. I mean, in a sentence, that's the whole project. Until you've given yourself up to God, you'll never have a real self. Right? So until you understand how the universe is constructed, that it's God and then you, that you're not your own God, and that other people are not your own gods, put not your faith in princes, right? Or your own tribe isn't your God, or your own anything. It's a very simple uh, binary choice. You know, God is God or he's not. If you think that God is God, um, your life will be lived out in one way. And if God is displaced, your life will be lived out in another way. Um, and uh, in the grand scheme of things, a much more um, useless life that's sort of lost on eternity. So the question for you and for me is how we can have a bit of heaven now, right? But heaven is defined not by how we define it, but how Jesus defines it. I don't have any enemies. Turn the other cheek. Pray for your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Be generous, right? This is the way of Jesus. And it, there, there's never a starker contrast than, uh, of Jesus than what's happening now in America on all sides. You don't hear anybody talking about um, w with real enthusiasm, or you don't see coalitions building with real enthusiasm about embracing people who were um, enemies. You, you just don't, you don't see that. And that, that needs to return. Otherwise, you, know, you get what every other large empire has gotten, which is demine and d demise and disruption and finally extinction. And then somebody else comes to power. And those are often brutal times. So all of that said, it's like First Peter at the end of First Peter. Since you know the whole world will be dissolved with fire, what sort of persons ought you to be right now? Well, the creed actually tells that to you. And it's so interesting that Jesus comes to us with tenderness, that Jesus comes to us with love. Jesus can come next week as a king any way he wants to come, but it's so remarkable that Jesus comes with tenderness. Jesus comes with everybody in and nobody out. Jesus comes in the way of love. We may not manipulate that, right? We see as Jesus sees. We say as Jesus says. We love as Jesus loves. That's what we do. We may not seize control of this. You know, this tribe belongs to Jesus, and it is defined by um, a heavenly father who is gentle with us, who is tender with us, who loves us. Now, of course, 
Um, this means that he has authority over us. And you see, that's, ooh, you know, that somebody else would have authority over me. Well, you know, in one sense you can say to people, you know, go it on your own like millions of people before you, and you'll find out what it's like to have no authority. Um, your life will turn out wretched in some way, right? Even if it happens at the moment of death, your life will turn out wretched. But if you want a life that's full, that's divine, that's open, that's given to light, that's given to love, that's given to mercy, that is a witness in the world that lets you accept your own death and your own suffering as blessing and gift, then that's the way of Jesus. And that's what's trying to be explained. So um, I've run you through a couple of pieces of the creed trying to, trying to, um, trying to, to understand that. I also have tried to be quite mindful of the notion um, that you ought not be suspicious of God. You know, so, so often we're suspicious of, we sort of, we sort of carry su- suspicion around about other people. And, you know, these, of course, these are the things, these are at the root, this kind of suspiciousness is at the root of racism, of bigotry, of hatefulness, of, you know, the suspicion of, you know, who that person is and what that person might be doing. It's so, so terribly important to live in the way of Jesus, which is the way of openness and love. And as Luther said in the small catechism, putting the best construction on everything, right? So how can you live, how can you live in that way, right? Because in a way, you know, suspicion is just a way of being self-centered. It's just saying that I have a better line on everything than God has a line on things. And so, um, you know, I'll sort of, I'll sort of do as I do. So, um, I'm kind of at point three, and I'm just going to pick up and start going where I went last week. You can, you know, you can always find reasons not to trust. You know, there's, people will always fail you. You know, one of the proofs that nobody is perfect is the way that people do fail you. You know, I fail my wife, I fail my kids, I fail you. But, you know, you fail the people you work for, you fail your community, nation. I mean, just sort of go on and on. And, you know, that can be, when we don't get everything we want, you see, now even how the question is set, when I don't get everything we, I want, then there must not be a God, or God must hate me, or something else. Well, just slow down for just a moment, okay? Um, it's all about how you, if you, think, if you think about God in that way, you think one way, but if you think that God is here, reconciled the world to himself in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, the text I gave you. If, if God is here, reconciled the world, sorry, if God is here, reconciling the world to himself, so he comes and he gathers people and he embraces them and pulls them close. Everybody, you know, for God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only son to die. So if God is reconciling the world, if this is God's embrace, that everybody is in and nobody's out, Right? So Jesus will only be your enemy if you make him be your enemy. If you, you're free, and if you make him be your enemy. But from Jesus' side, everybody is in and nobody's out, right? From Jesus' side, hell is meant to be empty. From Jesus' side, every last person in the world is meant to be drawn to the Eucharist. From Jesus' side, what does it mean to have the Gentiles included? It's everybody else. Everybody's in, right, from Jesus' side. You only have Jesus as your enemy if you make him be your enemy. And then Jesus begins to describe to you what life is and what the world looks like so that you can move on, right? And one of the things you begin to discover then is this talk about God as Father. You have to talk about God in some way, right? And one of the ways that Jesus talks about God 
is he gives his father to you. He, he, he becomes your brother. He takes flesh and blood. He takes on the human project with all the troubles. And he comes to you and he embraces you. And so technically this happens to you, of course, in your baptism, where the name is put on you. So you become a child of God. You belong to the family. Jesus is your brother. He gives you his father. And so, for example, you can pray to this person, Papa, Abba, Father, our Father, my Father, who art in heaven, right? So your relationship with the one who made you, the one who is above all things, your relationship, if you will, with authority is not a judgmental relationship where always you are condemned and broken and punished and hurt and displaced, right? No, your relationship with the one who is in authority authority over you is that that person is always running after you like the father runs after the prodigal son. Yeah, I've said this to you a thousand times. There's just one story in scripture. It's the story of the prodigal son, right? Where the son tells his father to drop dead and leaves, but every day his father waits for just a glimpse, right? And then when um, that child returns, what, is, what does the father do? He runs. In the ancient world, old men don't run. That is to shame himself, right? It's just as a matter that he's old and he wears robes. It's that he shames himself in the eyes of the entire community when he, wholly clean, intact, faithful, runs to embrace one who is just his opposite, right? This is a story of, this is, this is a story of your father, your heavenly father, who comes to you, right, humbly, right? All the ways you can describe humility, humbly on the fold of an ass riding into Jerusalem, humbly in flesh and blood, humbly with his name so he doesn't destroy you, humbly in water, right? humbly in the Holy Eucharist, humbly in words spoken, I love you, I forgive you. So you, you can imagine if the church looked like this, it would have much more credibility. And people do try. I mean, there are people like Mother Teresa around. There are people around. There are people around who do this bit by bit. And you have to try to remember, opposite the political way of engaging things, I think there might even be, I think it might be in today, the little Mother Teresa quote of do, do one thing by one thing and do each thing by love. Right? So we have, in the world's way, you build kingdoms, right? You build processes. You build systems. You build nations. You build kingships. The way of Jesus, how does Jesus do his work? Did you ever notice that, the, that the, the stories in Scripture are when Jesus comes to somebody individually, right? Knows and says, I love you very much, you're mine. Or you're my friend. Or I don't condemn you. Where are the people who condemn you? Did you ever notice that? Did you see how this works? So you can't have so much, you can't have so much worry about whether you will measure up by some, you know, sort of, standard that somebody else might put on you externally. I mean, the standard for Jesus is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. One by one, love your neighbor as yourself, love God. Yes, sir. Question. How do you juxtapose the, the Old Testament God that was wrathful and smoked the guy who just touched the, the ark who he, the priest couldn't go into the holy homies where God was because they died and they had, that's why they put the cord to pull them back out. Um, God doesn't change. So does God have uh, natures or are we to uh, 
how do we learn from the Old Testament God of power, might, wrath, as opposed to today the gospel of God of love and, and you know, acceptance? I'm going to introduce you to him now. All right, here we go, right? Thank you. At MIT, I think I told you I had a friend who went to MIT, and in his physics class, the last question on the physics exam was always the first lecture of the next term. These people who could anticipate what would come next did very well, right? So congratulations, young man. Um, if Bob Dylan doesn't pick up his Nobel Prize, you're right there for us, okay? So here we go. Um, so I'll just go to number five. So we'll sort of take this up, right? You're not, you may not like this answer. I'm not sure... Uh, I'm not sure if this is going to run, uh, run, run rough on you, but let's, let's have a go at this. It's an interesting way to talk about it. So, you know, what we mean and what we don't mean when we say God is our Father. I believe in God the Father, right? What is, well, what in the world does that mean, right? Because, you know, there's all kinds of things tied up in there in terms of gender and patriarchy and authority and, and um, um, origin and being, you know, what does all that sort of stuff mean? Well, at least you can say some things. And you've learned already by now. I mean, you have to have learned from, since we've been doing this for a few weeks now. I mean, I'm obviously not taking you through this thing word by word to try to explain to you, you know, how this was put together and each heresy and how it was refuted. We'll do a little of that. I actually, what I mean for the creed for you to do is, you know, I want you to think about, for example, I was, I was you know, working ahead a little bit and I was thinking about, um, I believe in all things visible and invisible. And I thought, you know what, this would be a good time to talk about angels, right? It would just be a good time to talk about the angel that's sitting next to you right now or the angel that surrounds your house and protects you or all the times your guardian angel has pulled you out of very stupid things that you did and uh, saved your life, right? So I'm, I'm sort of giving you, I'm trying to give you a way that you can, that's practical, it's a practical way for you to live. And frankly, if you live this way, it's a practical, it points to Christ. And then beyond that, it's up to the baby Jesus to do what he does with people. Your responsibility is just your life, right? My responsibility is my life in these two square blocks because that's my vocation. Your responsibility is your life and your family. Um, you know, of course you try to make the world a better place. Of course you're respectful of people. Christians should be, always be at the front of these things. But uh, that's why it's so important for us then how we act and how we speak and you know, what we aren't sucked into and what we don't post and what we don't tweet and what we're careful about. And it's hard for us because you're all bright people and this is a little bit different than the paradigm of the world or maybe even the paradigm of where you work. But, you know, just sort of see. So let's, 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 so let's meet this um, Old Testament God. I'm just going to be curious about this, all right? So in some sense, God is a father in a real sense. He has a son and they're... they're Relationship is eternal and ontological, a big word for just being, you know. So ontological is the being of things or how things work or existence. So basically, it's, it's simple like this. God is there from forever, and um, the Son is there from forever, but in a, in a thing that the scriptures call begotten, which is very difficult to explain, right? But you simply know, what you know primarily is that, that the ordering, that the Father has a Son, and that both are there from forever. But you know, the technicalities of that, it gets difficult to explain, especially to people who are bound in time and space like we are. And he also has you as a child of God, right? So and there's a couple of senses in a very real way. God is Father to Jesus, God is Father to you. In a real or an ontological sense, I get my being, as Paul says, you know, when he's on Mars Hill in Acts, uh, the God, he quotes a Greek 
a Greek um, poet favorably and says, the God in whom we live and breathe and move and have our being. So that's sort of, in some sense, you know, um, this idea, notion of existence. But God is also our Father in, uh, in an analogous sense. Now, ana- analogies get slippery. So analogies are stories, or analogies are examples where things kind of match up. This is that, this is that. But at some point, they always break down because if you could tell the story literally, you'd tell it. But you can't tell the story literally. It, it overwhelms you. It's too big for you. And so you say, well, it's like this, okay? So God is a father, but not a human father, right? And so this is a, this is a, this is a difficulty. This was a, a special difficulty when I taught at Valpo with college kids. Um, kind of by about the fifth or sixth lecture of getting to know kids and stuff, I often had, a, I, I ended up talking to a, a lot of young women. And this was the thing about new, being a new, a new professor. You know, you don't realize when people come to you and say it first, when you say, my friend, then you realize you're talking to the friend, right? And so there's this notion of how people kind of open themselves and reveal themselves to you and try to figure things out. But um, bad fathers are a big problem. You know, bad fathers are a, are a difficulty, Right? And, and sometimes you can lose people right at the point of um, God the Father. If people's primary experience with a father is someone who is abusive, sexually abusive, distant, my father is the person who leaves when things go badly, right? Who leaves me alone and unloved. You can spin this out. You live in the same world I live in. So already the analogy can have a difficulty, but to preserve it, let me suggest to you this. It, it runs in one way. So if you, if you can imagine a good father. I actually had dinner with somebody over the past couple of months who, when this person was married, um, her bridesmaid said to her, your father is the meanest man I've ever met. Now, that's a remarkable kind of statement, right? And you can imagine the kind of how that must have gone at the wedding and then, you know, I mean, but even beyond in life, I mean, the difficulty of trying to keep families and in-laws and all the cross-currents, right? Well, the, you know, intellectually, I can say to you, the river just runs one way. You know, God the Father from forever drenches the world with love. Chief among that, or chief proof for that, is the putting his son Jesus Christ in your place, right? Reconciling the world himself in Christ in a way that we would understand in a very violent world, one of the things we do understand still is sacrifice, even human sacrifice, right? We disguise it as policemen or soldiers or um, activists or some other way, but we still, we still understand it. Um, the, river, the river runs in, in just ways. So, you know, all I can say, I can't talk you out of trouble, especially if you had a bad father, male or female. I can't talk you out of that trouble. I can only point to you the fact that there are some good fathers. I've known some good fathers. There are some good fathers who exist um, in all, with all their imperfections. And then also, beyond that, um, God who is Father to Christ. So I give you this quote. Um, I give you this from Alistair McGrath. Uh, he was kind of a genius boy when I was at Cambridge because he was a Ph.D. physicist and very accomplished, and he decided to start over and study for the ministry. And then ended up doing a PhD and became a Don at Oxford. Um, But he's a fairly clear-thinking guy. So go with this and see what you think, okay? 
God is a father. I'm sorry. Analogies are memorable. They are powerful visual images that stimulate our imagination. So in some way, that's helpful. You can imagine all the ways that God can be kind to you. In some ways, God is like a human father, and in others, he's not. There are genuine points of similarity. God cares for us just as human fathers care for their children. God is the ultimate source of our existence, just as human fathers brought us into being. Just as there is something of our own father in each of us, so we are made in the image of our Heavenly Father. God exercises authority over us, as do human fathers. He knows our weaknesses and problems, as do human fathers. But there are genuine points of dissimilarity, too. Speaking of God as Father does not mean that God is a human being, for example, nor does the necessity of a human mother point to the need for a divine mother. God, and we did this now, you remember we did this, I told you why there need not be an argument between Christianity and science, why there need not be an argument between Christianity and reason, why there need not be an argument between Christianity and so many things that are kind of faux arguments today, often because Christians press the wrong side of the issue, right? So, um, God reveals himself in images and ideas that tie in with our world of everyday existence, yet do not, and this is the key, reduce God to that everyday world. So God is bigger than the analogy. The analogy is not bigger than God. When we say God is our father, we don't mean he is just another human father. Rather, we mean that thinking about human fathers help us think about God. It's an analogy. Like all analogies, it breaks down at points. However, it's still extremely useful and vivid way of thinking about God. One of the, um, you know, one of the problems with Christians, and it is actually an, a, a problem of unfaith, is when we have to have every last piece of the mystery nailed down. I think I told you. I think I've told you this. I only have so many stories. I've been here long enough to have told you all of them. But indulge me. I'm getting old, and I forget what I've done. So, you know, I was in Israel um, when I, I spent the summer studying in Israel. And um, most of the folks there were, it was when, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennials, millennials were all the rage. And these guys would argue, you know, in, we would be staying in hostels and, you know, it'd be 10 guys. And they would argue endlessly into the night about what, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, like blah, 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 blah. And, um, you know, I finally, I said, I just bumped into the, the leader of, of the troop and then I said, man, I do not get this. And he said, well, to have to have it all nailed down you know, when will come again and things will separate and who goes first and how washerwomen, one gets pulled up and, you know, one man is gone and, you know, if you're in bed and one per you know, to have it all nailed down is actually a lack of faith. And in some ways, your relationship with God is the same way. You have, you have these broad things that are certain to be true, for example, that God loves you and that God loves the person next to you even if you don't love him at all, right? And you live your life imaginatively, creatively, in these broad ways, consistent with the character of God, divine virtues, virtue over tribe, virtue over tribe, virtue over tribe. We spent a whole year talking about the divine virtues, right? So you live as you can in the image of God, and come what may, you're in God's hands. So you don't have to work every last thing out. What you do need to work out is how you live in love in the world. That's what you have to work out. But how it all the pieces get together, you know, that's part of what it means to say God is outside time and space, or God is a mystery. So, um, 
For some, however, thinking about God as a father is thoroughly unhelpful. They may only have negative memories of their father as a tyrant, or their father may have abandoned them, or their mother at an early age. An image that is meant to convey compassion, care, and commitment thus suggests quite the opposite. If this is a problem for you, perhaps the following thoughts might be helpful. First, notice how often scripture compares God to a human mother. The love of God for his people is often compared to the love of a mother for her child. If you have fond memories of your mother, you may find it helpful to draw on these in thinking about God's care for you. Second, the analogy of God the Father also indicates what human fathers ought to be like. Human fathers pay attention. The same care, compassion, and commitment God shows toward us are meant to be reflected in the attitude of human fathers toward their children, and frankly, then passed on to their children insofar as you're able. I mean, your child may turn out to be a complete dork, but make sure that you've, you've done your best, your part in living in a way that is non-oppressive, non-discriminatory, non-hurtful, non-tyrant, okay? Finally, remember that the best way of all is thinking about, I'm sorry, finally, remember that the best way of all of thinking about God is to think about Jesus Christ himself. Anyone who's seen me has seen God the Father. So think of the love, care, and kindness you see reflected in the face of Jesus. This is what the love of God for you is like. This, of course, is why you meditate on an icon or on a painting. Because what you, you're absorbed into the love of that face. If you've seen the face of Jesus, you've seen the face of Christ. Now, I just want to um, finish up then with this bit, of, um, with your question now, Bruce, about what you do with an Old Testament Jesus. So we do have not only, uh, so I did Almighty Father in this bit. So I've tried to sort of paint for you what Father would look like. And hopefully I can paint it for you in a way that um, one can't take offense at it, um, except it, unless one wants to say, you know, I will not be loved or I'm independent. There are ways you can take offense at this, but hopefully there are some things we'd have to concede. If people say, you know, I choose hate over love, we'd have to just say, well, okay. Or if they say, you know, I'm the measure of all things, I'm captain of my own ship, I'm it, I'm self-sufficient. I mean, first there's a thousand ways to show that to be a lie, but nevertheless, if people say that, um, you just, you know, all you can do is continue to love them. But there is the other side of this, which is the almighty side. This um, you might know as Pantocrator, which is the, this is the image that often comes up at this time of year. If you go to Hagia Sophia, Jesus on the top, you regular to see it, where Jesus is come to judge the world with omnipotence. So part of the answer to your question, Bruce, which is a, is a good question, is um, one of the things that human beings forget is that God will have the last say. Right? Now, you yourself should think about fabulous not because he's going to sort out all those other horrible people, but because you don't have to worry about it. And vengeance then does not belong to you. Vengeance belongs to God. And if he chooses not to be vengeful, what is it to you? If he hires people and he pays them the same, whether he hires them at the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, what is it to you? It's Other people are God's business to sort out. Their fate is God's business. Your business is to be loving, right? That's your business. God, but the God will sort it out someday is the reason that you can live in hope. This is why you do not have to be afraid. You do not have to be afraid because God surrounds you with angels as his child and he pushes you through your life. And whatever happens to you, suffering, you know, 
trial, even death, is a blessing to you. Right? Why? Because you have a point where you start. This This is lost so much on people that you have a point that starts here. You do have a start, but you never have a finish. Right? This is so important to you. You'll die somewhere about here. But um, that's your death, of course, is not the end. It's just your death. It's translation to the afterlife. It's a threshold to a bigger thing. We worry about so many things, and we are vengeful about so many things that we need not be vengeful about. We are judgmental about so many things we need not judge. This all belongs to Jesus, right, as Pantocrator. He will return. It's his world. He will make it right. This is part of what it means for us, too, to be under authority. When we are under authority, it doesn't mean that we're over everybody else in authority. It means that we're under authority, right? And to embrace that in a way that lets us move through the world without worry and without fear. I'm, you know, I know you. You know, I've been here for 20 years. I know you have disappointments. I know you've suffered. I know some of you have been hurt deeply by other people. I know the people near you have died. I know, I know. My life is the same, right? But the reason you can live in hope and move out the door here today without fear is because Jesus surrounds you with love, with angels, with protection. And Romans 8, he knits together everything, everything, good and evil in your life for the good of those who love God. Right? So while this may be, your, your life may be up and down right now, the end will be all good and no evil. This is the great blessing of that purgatory described at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, where everything evil is burned away and everything good goes with you forever. Right? So this part of your life is good and evil, good and evil, good and evil. But beyond this, at this point, this moment, everything is burned away and you're moved into a place where it's not only the good and beauty of God, but it is the good and beauty that you've been able to do one by one, nose to nose with people through your own life. Right? You get to share with it the rest of your life. Now, it's extraordinarily important that you observe this very simple sentence that comes next. Because this is often a reason why people are suspicious of God, or they find God to be diabolical, or they deny his existence. They don't make the simple distinction that while God can do all things, God chooses to do certain things. Yes, of course, God can do everything, but he doesn't choose to do everything. There's a range of reasons for this. One is, wisdom isn't cheap and we pay for it with pain. So suffering can be a way of growth. That's one way. One is, another is that we don't see the big picture. We don't see how the whole world or universe is being knit together and pulled along toward this end. We don't see this. We don't have the perspective. You know, Thomas Aquinas' great thing where he says, um, God doesn't control the future. It's just that God knows everything about you and every other person And he knows all the ways that you interact. And based on your personality, he knows what you'll do. And that's why he knows the future. But he doesn't cause the future, right? So interesting. That God is heavily at work pulling all things together for the good of those who love God. You won't be able to see it. You won't be able to see it. But what happens is you extrapolate from the love that's been given to you now that God would adopt you, that God would forgive you, that God would put you in community, that God would show you beautiful things, that God would give you talent, that God would let you prosper, that God would let you be merciful, that God would share his endeavor to alleviate suffering, right? That you could be part of this, right? Your duties are to be obedient insofar as you have strength, 
an opportunity and let God knit it all together. What you do know is that God's never at a loss, that God is always reliable, that his love is inexhaustible, and that he chooses to do the right thing. By nature, God is good. By nature, God is love. So every action of God is good. Every action of God is loving. Okay, now, finally to your question. What about those times when things are going to hell? So two examples, Sodom and Gomorrah and the Mount Sinai, right? Which I reference here, but we have to just review the story. So you remember that God says, Abraham's my bud. I'm going to, you know, we're doing things together. I'm going to go over there and blow up Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, I think I'll let Abraham know. And, and so he tells him, and then Abraham's like, whoa, 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 fire and brimstone, right? What about if I can find 50 people? What if I have 20 people? What if I have 10 people? And then the Lord, now, and then the Lord sort of backs down. Okay, same way. Mount Sinai. Moses goes up. It's the beatific vision. He sees the face of God. He sees God's face to face and live. He gets the ten words. This is going to be great. This is how you're going to live. Down the, and then as he gets close, he hears it. And, and Aaron, the priest, the high priest, has built a golden calf. And the people are all cutting themselves and making sacrifices and dancing around and worship an idol. And then the Lord says, that is it, man. You're the only one I love. I'm going to start over with you. I'm, I'm killing all of them, and I'm going to start over with you. And then Moses like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's like, yeah, but you said you were going to take care of them. And uh, what are people going to say about you? I mean, how are you going to be seen as somebody who's reliable if when people cross you, you just obliterate them, right? And then Moses finally says, hey, like so many people say, if you're going to kill my friends, kill me too. So interesting, very common response, right? And then the Lord changes his mind. So try this. Um, I love you, Karen, but the clock is my enemy, okay? So here's the thing. If I don't do this now, Karen, by the time you get back from that big fancy Thanksgiving dinner you're going to, none of us will remember what I said. So try this. Uh, Here we go. What the Bible puts before us is not a record of God who is always triumphantly doing miracles. So he doesn't, like, get you out of every jam you ever get yourself in or somebody puts you under but a God who gets his way by patiently struggling to make himself clear to human beings. We should try that too. We should patiently struggle to make ourselves clear to other human beings. Patiently. To make his love real to them, especially when they seem not to want to know or want to avoid him or retreat into their own fantasies about him. That is the postmodern world. That is us. We would prefer our fantasies. We'd prefer to make up our own gods. We'd prefer to be in control, right? And typically, the Bible does this by a very bold method, by telling a certain kind of story from a human point of view, as if God, as if God needed to be persuaded to be faithful to his people. Someone like Moses or Abraham, someone who has good reason to know something about what God is really like, is faced with a crisis. Things are going badly. Surely God is going to give up and blast people into oblivion. So Abraham and Moses argue with God until they've persuaded him to be merciful. Now, just, I, just, I just put this out this for your imagination, okay? This is very interesting. The writers of these stories knew what they were doing. They didn't believe in a bad-tempered, capricious God who needed to be calmed down by sensible human beings. Human beings, God, right? They know that... Mo- that the most vivid way of expressing what they understood about God was to show Abraham and Moses appealing to his deepest and most true thing about God as they pray to him. There's the two stories. 
Try this. The stories are, in a way, tongue-in-cheek. They invite us into precisely the fantasy we've been thinking about. What would you do faced with the disastrous stupidity of the people of America in an election season? Oh, wait a second. Hold on. I got to... The people of Israel in the desert. I'm sorry. I just... You see how my imagination runs wild some days. You'd be very tempted to annihilate them, wouldn't you? Well, that's the difference between you and God and between false gods and real ones. There you go. That's the difference between you and God and between false gods and real ones. This is what almightiness looks like in practice for those of you who fear almightiness and know people who fear almightiness. It's the unlimited power to be be there, to be faithful to and for a world that is deeply unstable and unjust and suspicious and uncooperative. The power to go on trying to get through at all costs. Laboring and wrestling with the human heart. This is why belief, trust in God the Father Almighty is so different. Wish fulfillment and projection. All people say, that's just what you want. You just imagine that God is out there. Let me just tell you, this is not what we would imagine. Because every person I know would imagine that their enemies are annihilated. Down deep when the chips are, are, are all, all laid on the table about some all-powerful character who can just do what he decides and get what he wants straight away. Instead, it's the discovery of what Abraham and Moses have discovered, a God who never runs out of love and liberty. God is to be trusted as we would trust a loving parent whose commitment to us is inexhaustible, whose purposes for us are unfailingly generous. Someone whose life is the source of our life and who guarantees that there's always a home for us. For now, what matters is to grasp the idea of a God whose power is made clear in his patience, not the way we normally think about power, and his capacity always to bring something fresh into the situation. Think creatively. Think imaginatively. Think in a new way. Have new hearts and minds. That's how Paul talks about it. And again, we can begin to see why the execution of Jesus could seem to the first Christians not a defeat, but a decisive moment of divine power. Ponder that, right? So is it basically all about relationship? All of what? The relationship. He wants a relationship with us. That's right. That's what doesn't change. So you, you, you motioned about what didn't change. What doesn't change is God is that he loves you. And frankly, you and I are a bit unlovable at times. But what doesn't change is that he always loves you. What does change is his strategy to get to you. Right? He might have to appear in the middle of the night for a guy like you. For Moses, you know, it's fire coming down the mountain. For some of these other people, they're a little softer. He might just tell them he loves them at the Eucharist today and they'll fall right in line, right? I don't know. Uh, Karen, you want to go? I'll give you two minutes. What do you got? You know, when you start with me, well, so what what I hear is like, yeah, well, all that stuff you were saying, but, all right, go ahead. (laughs) At least off balance, I hope. Okay. Yeah, well, that's a whole other story. Um, So, Of course you can, absolutely. Or does, through your prayers, do you change your mind? 
Maybe sometimes when you pray for people, you're, you know, I've often said to you, your enemies, the way you, the way you stop having enemies is to pray for them. And then the day you stop praying for them is the day that they've no longer come to a mind to annoy you the first thing in the morning, and then you've been cured. Is that, God, is that you working on God or God working on you? Did you pray your prayers or did your prayers pray you? Right? It's all a big bundle, Karen. Everything that's ever been said in here is all just one big piece of pizza dough. You pull one end, it stretches out, but it's still connected to the other end, right? It all starts to fit together. Maybe we'll all live long enough together to see if we can make it work in real time, okay? All right, let's go to the Eucharist. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, love you. See you at the Eucharist.